Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group and we study the words of the Buddha. We study this volumes 2 through 13, which is part of the Words of the Buddha book series. This book series starts with volume 1, which is a nice foundation to help you get started with the teachings of the Buddha. And you can actually take online classes through our group learning program, which will be starting on the 13th of August, which is next Sunday. And that's going to be a restart of the program that's now been taught six times. This will be the seventh time that it's been taught. This program is volumes 2 through 13 of that same book series where you can walk through learning the teachings of the Buddha using his own words. Today we're in volume 6, chapters 21 through 30. And the way that we do our class is we typically will start out with a meditation. Then we will go into reading the actual individual chapters. Some of them are just a paragraph or two. Then I'll share teachings on that particular chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. There's 10 individual chapters that we study. This is more of a study group versus me just sharing teachings. And students will oftentimes be reading the chapters before class and or after class and then coming to class just to be able to get some help and some guidance around what they've actually already learned through the book series. Because in the book series, you have the words of the Buddha, you have a reference going back to the original source teachings, and then you have words from me to be able to help you further understand the chapter. You can actually download these books from our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. From there, you'll see the link for free books, and you can either download a copy, you can download it and print it, or you can order printed versions from Amazon. So I'd like to welcome all of you to today's class and invite you to join along and study even if you haven't actually read these prior, you can still gain benefit from the class. As I mentioned, we will typically be meditating prior to studying, but today there's quite a few pages that need to be read and studied as part of our class. So we're going to forego the meditation as a way to go right into the teaching and ensure that we can cover all the various chapters that are outlined for today's class, which is chapters 21 through 30 of volume six. So as we go, you guys are welcome to ask any and all questions that you like. You can put the questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. I'll see those questions and then be able to help you get the answers that you need to help you develop your life practice towards the attainment of enlightenment. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions. You can even raise your hand and volunteer to read the chapters if you like. So this first chapter is titled, all that occurs without a cause or condition. 
This particular chapter is a continuation of a discourse that is broken out into three chapters in this particular book. We started back last week in chapter 19, which is this chapter 21 is a continuation of that. This chapter 19 is where the Buddha is outlining three aspects of thoughts and beliefs that were being held during his lifetime and that are also still held today in certain people's minds that are completely opposite of the natural law of gamma. And he outlines this at the beginning and then he goes through and explains in detail how these are not accurate and these aren't the truth. The first one that he talks about is he talks about that discontentedness, that conditioned feelings of pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant are all caused by what was done in the past. This is a belief that was held during his lifetime, and it's a belief that people have today. And if you remember, as I teach, there's nothing in the teachings of the Buddha that are based in belief. But oftentimes people believe that whatever they're experiencing today is based on what they did in their past life. And if you actually believed this and you thought this was true, then you would have no ability to improve the condition of your mind and get to enlightenment in this life because you can't go back to the past and change it. So how could you ever eliminate discontentedness in this life if your discontentedness was based on what you did in previous lives? You wouldn't be able to improve it. So what the Buddha is helping you to do here is to see the natural law of gamma very clearly. What you're experiencing in terms of discontentedness is not based on what you did in the past, but it's this cause and effect or action and result the results of your decisions of things you're doing right now in present day. Of course, there is some gamma that is based on the past, but your discontentedness is not based on the past. And then the Buddha also talks here in number two that some people during his lifetime, and including now, believe that the pleasure, pain, and neither pain nor pleasure, the discontentedness is caused by God's creative activity. Some people think that it's because of God that they are experiencing whatever they're experiencing, that they're kind of have this destiny or this fate that God has laid out for them. And now because of God, whatever they're experiencing, pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, it's all because of God. Well, once again, if somebody believed that, they wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment in this life because they can't influence God and tell God what to do. So if somebody held this belief, it would be hindering them from being able to see right view and what's actually causing their discontent feelings, which is craving, desire, attachment. And now we're going to go into the third one, which is chapter 21 of today's reading. This one is all about pleasure, pain, and neither pain nor pleasure is without a cause or condition. And the Buddha has a similar teaching here for each one of these three, but we'll go ahead and read this chapter 21 so that you can see what he's saying here, which is very similar to what he said on the others as well. It's titled, All That Occurs Without a Cause or Condition. Then, monks, I approach those aesthetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine in view as this, Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that occurs without a cause or condition. And I said to them, is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine in view? When I ask them this, they affirm it. Then I say to them, in such a case, is it without a cause or condition that you might destroy life? 
take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, produce argumentative speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will, and hold wrong view. Those who fall back on absence of cause and condition as the essential truth have no interest to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded, they do not guard the mind, and even the personal designation, aesthetic, could not be legitimately applied to them. So here the Buddha is helping people see that everything that is occurring is due to a cause or condition. This is the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, or action and result, the results of your decisions. So the conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant is happening based on conditions. The dependent origination, which was in volume five, chapter 14, shows detail by detail all the causes and conditions that lead to discontentedness. But in the Four Noble Truths, you get that window into understanding the real core of it, which is craving, desire, attachment, the mind longing and yearning. That's what's causing the discontentedness. But here the Buddha is talking to people who feel that there is no cause or condition that is causing pleasure, pain, and neither pain nor pleasure. Essentially, they don't understand the natural law of gamma in cause and effect, and they don't understand dependent origination. So we ask these individuals, these aesthetics and Brahmins, do you truly feel that there is no cause or condition to the discontent feelings? And they say, yes, that's what we agree with, and that's what we know to be the truth. But then the Buddha explains to them, is it in such a case that it is without causing condition that you might destroy life, which is killing, take what is not given, which is stealing, indulge in sexual activity, because as an aesthetic or Brahmin, they wouldn't be having sexual activity, speak falsehood, which is lying, produce argumentative speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter. These are all things that you purify and you improve as part of the path to enlightenment to be able to purify the mind. And then he sums it up with that you might be full of longing, which is craving, desire, attachment, have a mind of ill will, which is anger, hatred, and ill will, and hold wrong view, which is ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So is it without cause and condition that there's craving, anger, and ignorance, or these three poisons, or these three unwholesome roots, or three fires in the mind? And then the Buddha says, those who fall back on the absence of cause and condition as the essential truth, they have no interest to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. So they're not even trying to improve their life practice. They're not even growing. They're not even evolving because they don't even feel that there's any cause or condition. They haven't seen the truth that there is a cause and condition of one thing leading to the next. And then since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, the Buddha says they are muddle-minded because when the mind has pollutions, 
the craving, anger, and ignorance, those 10 fetters in detail explaining the pollutions in the mind, there's a lack of focus and concentration and clarity of mind and memory. So the Buddha is saying somebody who hasn't awakened to enlightenment is going to be muddle-minded. They're going to have this lack of concentration, that they don't guard their mind. Guarding the mind is mindfulness, having awareness of the mind, guarding the mind to observe whether there's craving, anger, and ignorance, or any of the other 10 fetters, so that you can then eliminate them through your practice. He says, even the personal designation of aesthetic could not be legitimately applied to them. So an aesthetic is somebody who's given up worldly possessions and entered into homelessness as a way of progressing on this path to enlightenment. So the Buddha is saying, if you don't understand that there's causes and conditions that lead to your discontentedness. Not only do you not have an interest to do what should be done or to avoid doing what should be done, not only is the mind muddled and you don't guard your mind, but you're not even on the path to enlightenment if you don't understand that there's causes and conditions that lead to the discontentedness. And he was sharing this with people that weren't part of his students. These were aesthetics from other teachers who had gathered into a particular area and Brahmin from different locations. And he was sharing with them to help them be able to see the truth of what is true reality is that there are causes and conditions that lead to this discontentedness. And his whole comprehensive teachings are essentially helping you to see those causes and conditions because by seeing those causes and conditions, then you can eliminate them from the mind. But if you can't see and you can't understand what are the causes and conditions that are leading to discontentedness, then you wouldn't be able to eliminate them through things like breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, through the steps on the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings that the Buddha shares in order to purify the mind. So it's very important to be able to see those causes and conditions. And this connects in with the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, that because we didn't do the work in our previous lives to be able to purify our mind, then there's rebirth, there's continuous birth. But once you train your mind to eliminate those causes and conditions, not only have you eliminated the causes and conditions that cause discontentedness, but you've eliminated the causes and conditions that lead to rebirth as well. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. Remember, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, and I'll be able to see that. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. All right, I'm not seeing any questions here, so I'm going to go on to the next chapter, which is chapter 22. This one is titled, Worst Kind of Doctrine, That There Is No Gamma. Remember, gamma is cause and effect or action and result, the results of your decisions. This isn't something you should believe in. It's not a mystical, magical thing. It's not punishment and rewards. It's essentially a sequencing of events. And the Buddha here is going to explain how a set of teachings or a discipline that doesn't involve the natural law of gamma is essentially the worst kind of teachings that you could encounter. And you'll hear why and how he explains it. He says, monks, a hair blanket is declared to be the worst kind of woven garment. A hair blanket is cold in cold weather and hot in hot weather, ugly, foul smelling, and uncomfortable. So too, the doctrine of Makalai 
is declared the worst among the doctrines of the various aesthetics. The unwise man Malachi teaches the doctrine in view, there is no karma, no deed, no energy. That is, not only is there no result from karma, but also no karma itself. All deeds are null. Monks, the fortunate ones, arahants, the perfectly enlightened ones of the past, taught a doctrine of karma, a doctrine of deeds, a doctrine of energy. Yet the unwise man, Malachi, contradicts them with his claim, there is no karma, no deed, no energy. The fortunate ones, arahants, the perfectly enlightened ones of the future, will also teach a doctrine of karma, a doctrine of deeds, a doctrine of energy. Yet the unwise man, Malachi, contradicts them with his claim, there is no karma, no deed, no energy. At present, I am the arahant, the perfectly enlightened one, and I teach a doctrine of karma, a doctrine of deeds, a doctrine of energy. Yet the unwise man, Malachi, contradicts me with his claim. There is no karma, no deed, no energy. Just as a trap set at the mouth of a river would bring about harm, pain, calamity, and disaster to many fish, so too the unwise man, Malachi, is, as it were, a trap for people who has arisen in the world for the harm, pain, calamity, and disaster of many beings. Okay, so this is pretty strong talk by Gautama Buddha helping to understand that any collection of teachings that doesn't teach the natural law of gamma is like a trap. Because if you truly thought that you could do anything in the world and there's going to be no results from that, then you would just go out in the world and do all kinds of unwholesome things. And the more unwholesome things that you were doing, all that unwholesomeness is coming back to you in this life and if you're going to be reborn in future lives as well. You're just creating more and more calamity, more and more disaster for yourself. And he compares it to this fish trap, this individual that was teaching, and he compares a set of teachings that doesn't have the natural law of gamma to this blanket that is cold in the cold weather and hot in the hot weather. Essentially, it's useless. It doesn't perform its job. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do, which is keep you warm in cold weather. And he even talks about it being ugly, foul-smelling, and uncomfortable. So it's important to understand that there's this natural law of gamma and its cause and effect, and that this is what you're experiencing, and this is the results of your decisions. So anything that you experience in life is a result of your decisions. And it's more and more understanding that natural law that you become wise or you become awakened to this natural law, and then you'll be able to make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. But as long as you lack the wisdom of this natural law, you'll tend to make unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results, and you'll continue to experience that unwholesomeness over and over and over again. The Buddha explains that the fortunate ones, the arahants, the perfectly enlightened ones in the past, in the future, and then him all teach the natural law of gamma. The perfectly enlightened ones are a Buddha. A individual who eliminates the 10 fetters 
is an arahant. They are an enlightened being. But a fortunate one, a perfectly enlightened one, is one who's done that on their own without the help of any teachers or any guides. Then they dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their independently discovered teachings and countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And then they preserve their teachings in such a way that countless more people get to enlightenment after their death. So a perfectly enlightened one is a Buddha. A individual who gets to enlightenment and eliminates the 10 fetters, they are an arahant. But a perfectly enlightened one is an arahant, someone who's eliminated the 10 fetters, but has done so on their own without the help of any teachers or any guides. So you can attain this state of awakening as the fourth stage of enlightenment where the mind is enlightened and that would be referred to as an arahant or an enlightened being but at that point you wouldn't be a perfectly enlightened one you wouldn't be a buddha because you would need help you would need teachers and guides to help you along the way but someone who does this by themselves would be considered a perfectly enlightened one and the buddha is explaining that all the perfectly enlightened ones are going to teach this natural law of gamma. Let me know what questions you guys have on this particular teaching. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So we'll move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 23. This is a really short one. Here, the title of this is titled, Result of Gamma is Threefold. And what is the result of gamma? The result of gamma, I say, is threefold to be experienced in this very life or in the next rebirth or on some subsequent occasion. This is called the result of gamma. This, monks, is called action's fruit. So here what the Buddha is essentially saying is when you make a decision, either wise or unwise, you are going to experience the results of that either in this life in the next rebirth or some subsequent occasion. You can't run and hide from the decisions that you make. You can run for potentially a period of time, but ultimately the gamma is going to catch up with you. It's not possible for you to avoid your unwise decisions. It's going to produce unwholesome results. And as you make wise decisions, it is going to produce wholesome results for you. So when you come to understand this and you see the truth in this 100%, then the next decision becomes, well, if I'm going to experience anything that I decide to do and any decisions or choices that I make, let me make sure that my decisions are wise so that I can only experience wholesome results. Let me stop making these unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results. And the way that you would do that is awaken to the wisdom of the natural law of gamma, namely the Eightfold Path. By learning and practicing the Eightfold Path, you will come to understand the natural law of gamma more and more clearly, and then you will be making wiser and wiser decisions that lead to wholesome results. And I've given an analogy of a garden hose in past classes where you have been going through life unaware of the natural law of gamma and been putting mud into this garden hose. This is the unwise decisions. And we've been putting all this mud into the garden hose. And then when mud spits back at us, we're like, what's going on? Why is all this mud? And typically in the unenlightened state, we look to blame somebody else for all the problems that we're experiencing. But in reality, we've been putting that mud into the garden hose ourselves. 
But what you're doing on this path is you're hooking up the garden hose to a faucet and you're opening up the faucet to try to flush out this mud by putting nice clean water into the garden hose. Well, if you're coming to classes regularly, if you're reading these books, if you're meditating, if you're seeking guidance from your teacher, this is opening up that faucet really, really wide. But if you're only meditating once a week or once a month, or you're just kind of haphazardly looking at the path to enlightenment, you've got like a little drip going through this garden hose. It's going to take you an enormous amount of time to ever get this mud out of the garden hose because you're still shoving mud into the garden hose as you go. So what you'd like to do is open up that faucet as wide as possible and start getting lots of fresh water coming through this garden hose. But it's going to spit mud for a while. Even though you get on this path, you're going to have situations around you where unwholesome things are occurring based on your unwise decisions from the past. But what you're trying to do is get as much fresh water through this garden hose as possible. And it's going to spit mud for a while, but every once in a while, it's going to spit some clean water and you're going to see some wholesomeness occurring in your life. And then it's going to spit some more mud and then it's going to spit some clean water. Over time, it's going to spit out all this mud and eventually you'll get to clean water all coming out of this garden hose and you'll be able to experience nothing but wholesomeness coming back to you because you're only making wise decisions. But that comes with time. You're ramping down your unwise decisions and your unwholesome results and you're ramping up your wise decisions and your wholesome results. And that's what the Eightfold Path is there for. The more you dial that Eightfold Path in, you can ramp up those wise decisions in all your relationships and all your interactions more and more. And then as your old unwholesome gamma is coming back to you, you can deal with it now through the Eightfold Path and extinguish that old unwholesome gamma through only making new gamma that is wholesome by making wise decisions because you can't run and hide from the results of your decisions, either in this life or some future life, you're gonna experience the results of those. So it's best to dedicate some time and effort and energy towards learning, reflecting, and practicing these teachings so that you can then awaken to this natural law and ramp down those unwise decisions and ramp up the wise ones. Let me see what questions you guys might have on this particular chapter. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's go to the next chapter, which is chapter 24. Before I read this one, let me just preface it with a few things to help you guys understand what was going on at the time of the Buddha's life. This will help you. During the lifetime of the Buddha, it was believed, and it's even believed today too in some places, that whatever family you're born into, that you're destined to either have a really great life or you're destined to have a really miserable life based on the family that you're born into. There was a very strong caste system in place during the lifetime of the Buddha. And if you were born into an affluent family, then you were destined for greatness. And if you were born into a family that has less resources, you were considered to be destined for a very miserable life. And the Buddha was trying to show people and teach people that this isn't true, that it's not about where you're born. It's about what you choose to do in your actions. That's what's going to produce some type of result for you. So here you're going to see his teaching where he's saying it's not based on where you're born, whether you're any one particular 
person or you're destined for any kind of particular life. It's all about your actions. And this is because of the natural law of gamma. And by you having wise actions, which you need to cultivate wisdom of the natural law of gamma in order to have wise actions, then you'll experience wholesome results. And remember that when the Buddha talks about actions, it's bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions. It's all three of those. Where here he's just using the word action, but you can think of this as bodily action, verbal action, and mental action. So it starts off with the title, Beings Bound by Action. One is not a Brahmin by birth, nor by birth a non-Brahmin. By action is one a Brahmin. By action is one a non-Brahmin. For men are farmers by their acts, and by their acts are craftsmen too. And men are merchants by their acts, and by their acts are servants too. And men are robbers by their acts, and by their acts are soldiers too. And men are chaplains by their acts, and by their acts are rulers too. So that is how the truly wise see action as it really is, see dependent origination, skilled in action and its results. Actions makes the world go round. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by action, like the chariot wheel by the linchpin. Okay, so this first paragraph, the Buddha is talking about Brahman. During the lifetime of the Buddha, one of the caste systems that existed, and this still exists today, is this Brahmin class. And it's thought that if you're born into this Brahmin class, you're holy. These are essentially Hindu priests. And if you're born into this Brahmin class, then you're considered to be a holy person and you're a priest. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, the common person was taught that they couldn't really improve their life, that the way to improve their life was to go to the Brahmin priest pay money, and then they're going to do some kind of right ritual ceremony or worship on your behalf, and then your life was going to improve. But this bred a lot of corruption because one day the price to pay this Brahmin was one price, the next day it was a different price, and the common person couldn't do anything about it. They didn't have any recourse because they all believed that they were dependent on these Brahmin in order to get a better life. So they just paid whatever they needed to pay. And the Buddha realized that this was going on and realized that this isn't the way that somebody would improve their life. They need to understand the natural law of gamma of cause and effect or action and result. And by gaining that wisdom, then they can make wiser decisions and they can improve their life through that wisdom. So the Buddha is sharing here that one is not a holy person by birth, nor by birth not a holy person, but it is by action one is either holy or wise or having wholesome results in their life. It is by action that one is not a holy person or not wise or not experiencing uh, wholesome things. They're experiencing unwholesome things. And then he explains it and connects it to other occupations like farmers, like craftsmen, merchants, and servants, that if you're doing these occupations, you're a farmer because you are acting like a farmer. You're out in the field, you're planting, you're doing farming things, not just because you're born into that family that you're a farmer, but you're a farmer based on your actions or you're a craftsman based on your actions, a merchant or a servant based on your actions. 
And then the same thing with robbers, soldiers, chaplains, or rulers. And the Buddha is saying that this is how the wise truly see it, is that it's by your action that determines what the results of your life is going to be. It's not based on any other thing other than your action. And there, that's where you make the wise decision. Well, if my actions are determining what I experience in life, it's if it's my decisions, both bodily action, verbal action, and mental action, then let me gain wisdom about how to purify this and improve it so that I can then experience only wholesome results. And the Buddha then sums this up by saying, like a chariot wheel by a linchpin. So a chariot is the mode of transportation being pulled by a horse. And the linchpin is the thing that's connecting the cart to the horse. So if it the linchpin came out, everything would fall apart. So the Buddha is basically explaining how it's action that's holding all of this together, that it's your choices and decisions about your actions, bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions that's holding your life together. And by gaining wisdom about this natural law of gamma, you'll make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. And that's the linchpin. That's the center focus of gaining wisdom on the natural law of gamma. That's essentially what you're awakening to on this path to enlightenment. So let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So I'm going to move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 25. This is a real short one. Here it's titled, To Be Reborn Graceful, Rich, and Influential. Malachi, some women are not prone to anger or often intensely frustrated. Even if she is criticized a lot, she does not lose her temper and become irritated, hostile, and stubborn. She does not display anger, hatred, and bitterness. And she gives things to aesthetics or Brahmins, food and drink, clothing and vehicles, garlands, scents, and ointments, bedding, dwellings, and lighting. When she passes away from that state, if she comes back to this world, wherever she is reborn, she is beautiful, attractive, and graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion, rich with great wealth and property, and influential. So let me help you understand what the Buddha is sharing here. He's explaining the natural law of gamma. He's helping you to see why some people are born into the world, beautiful, attractive, graceful, having this supreme beauty of complexion, rich, having great wealth, property, and are influential. This is based on decisions from previous lives. So we can experience our gamma from previous lives, but like you were saying at the beginning of today's class, your discontentedness is not caused by what happened in your past lives. It's based on the craving, desire, attachment in the mind right now. But you can experience old gamma from previous lives based on craving, desire, attachment. So here he's explaining that if you don't have anger, if you're not frustrated, irritated, hostile, and stubborn, displaying anger, hatred, and bitterness, that this is going to lead to an improved rebirth in your next life. Because if you've ever seen your own face when you're being angry or frustrated or irritated, or you've seen somebody else, it looks kind of ugly, right? Seeing that anger and hostility coming out of the face, the facial expression is quite hostile. Or if there's someone who's stubborn, or if you're stubborn, if you look in the mirror, it looks pretty ugly. But then if you're cheerful and happy and 
polite and warm and loving and kind, you can also see that in the facial expression as well. So here the Buddha is explaining that if an individual is not prone to this anger and frustration, that they're going to have this beautiful appearance in their next life. But they would also have a more beautiful appearance in this life as well. And then he talks about this same individual practicing generosity with aesthetics and Brahmins, offering food, drink, clothing, vehicles, garlands, scents, ointments, bedding, dwellings, and lights. The practice of generosity is so important in your practice of getting to enlightenment because it's craving desire attachment that is causing the discontent feelings like anger, frustration, irritation, the hostility and the stubbornness, the bitterness. This is being caused by craving desire attachment. This is where the mind's holding on. There's a certain selfishness. The mind wants the objects of its affection. So one of the practices that you employ on this path to enlightenment to transform the mind is to practice generosity of giving and sharing. This trains the mind to let go. So if you're training the mind in this life with generosity to give and share, then in this life, you're also going to have less anger, frustration, and hostility, all these things that the Buddha is talking about. All the same things that lead to an improved rebirth in your next life also leads to enlightenment in this life. The goal is to get to enlightenment in this life, not to experience rebirth. The goal would be to get to enlightenment in this very life. So the same things that the Buddha is describing that leads to an improved rebirth also leads to enlightenment in this life. So if you train your mind to not be frustrated and irritated and hostile and stubborn, to not have bitterness and hatred, and you did that through breathing mindfulness meditation, of course, like I've taught in other classes, but also the generosity of giving and sharing, this is helping you to eliminate your craving, desire, attachment. So that's why the Buddha is talking about that in the first paragraph. And yes, it does lead to an improved rebirth, as the Buddha is explaining, but it also leads to enlightenment in this life as well. So let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter. All right, I'm not seeing any questions here. So I'm going to move on to the next chapter. This particular chapter, 26, is titled Gifts of a Wholesome Person. Here, the Buddha is going to talk a bit about generosity. Monks, there are these five gifts of a wholesome person. What five? One, he gives a gift out of confidence. Two, he gives a gift respectfully. Three, he gives a gift timely. Four, he gives a gift unreservedly. Five, he gives a gift without injuring himself or others. One, because he has given a gift out of confidence, wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property, and he is handsome, attractive, graceful, possessing supreme beauty of complexion. Two, because he is given a gift respectfully, wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property, and his sons and wives, slaves, servants, and workers are obedient, lend an ear, and apply their minds to understand. Three, because he is given a timely gift, Wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property, and timely benefits come to him in abundance. 4. Because he is given a gift unreservedly, wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property, 
and his mind inclines to the enjoyment of the five kinds of fine central pleasures. 5. Because he is given a gift without injuring himself or others, wherever the result of that gift is produced, he becomes rich with great wealth and property, and no damage comes to his property from any source, whether from fire, floods, kings, thieves, or displeasing heirs. These are the five gifts of a wholesome person. So here, I think this is pretty self-explanatory for all the different things that he's explaining, as is most of his teachings. They're all very clear, very concise. But let me focus in on number five, which is he gives a gift without injuring himself or others. As you guys heard me share in the last chapter, that generosity is a significant and important practice of your path to enlightenment. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment through being selfish and stingy. An enlightened being isn't selfish and stingy. They understand how to give and share without expectation of anything in return. But doing that without injuring himself or others, what this means is that you need to practice generosity from the middle way. If you practice generosity in excess, you wouldn't have your basic needs and necessities that you need to sustain your life. You'd be harming yourself if you gave excessively. But also, if you never gave and you never were generous in your life, you'd be quite selfish and stingy. You'd be holding on to things very tightly. And therefore, you'd have craving, desire, attachment, which would be very challenging to be able to ever experience the elimination of discontentedness in the mind because your mind's still craving and clinging. So it's this middle way with all things, including generosity, that you give and you share and you practice in such a way that you're not giving excessively where you're lacking or injuring yourself or you're also not holding on to things in such a stingy way. In terms of injuring others, this would be if you gave a gift by stealing something from one person and giving it to another person. This would be injuring other people in your gift. Or if you gave so excessively that your family didn't have the things that you need in order to sustain your life in the life of your family, this would be injuring others as well. So all of these other things I think are quite straightforward for you to understand. But this one here, I think that I needed to focus in on. But let me know what questions you guys have about any of these five, including the last one, and I'll be able to answer those questions for you. You can put them into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, we have a question here coming in from YouTube. Vladimir asked, if people had the right and wholesome decisions in previous lives, and as a result... They were reborn graceful and rich. Why do we see that many handsome and rich people make unwholesome actions? So being reborn into being wealthy or being beautiful or handsome or what have you doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily make wise decisions in this particular life. It just means that in your previous life, you made certain decisions that was enough for you to be reborn back into the human realm and to be reborn in a wealthy family with this handsomeness and beautiful complexion. So it doesn't mean that because of that, you're now going to make wise decisions because you're always either walking towards the light or towards the darkness. Which direction you walk is completely your choice. So you could be reborn into a rich and wealthy family and be beautiful and handsome or what have you, but choose to walk towards the darkness in that particular rebirth. Or you could choose to walk towards the light. Each individual has the ability to make whatever decisions that they would like. 
Let's see. I don't see any questions in Facebook. Thank you, Vladimir, for your question there. And I don't see any in Zoom either. So we'll go on to the next particular chapter, which is chapter 27. Here, this one is titled Deeds with Fruit That Result in Great Accomplishment and Power. Having cultivated for seven years a mind of loving kindness for seven eons of contraction and expansion, I did not return to this world. Whenever the eon contracted, I reached the plane of streaming radiance, and when the eon expanded, I arose in an empty heavenly mansion. And there I was, Brahma, the great Brahma, the unvanquished victor, the all-knowing, the all-powerful. Thirty-six times I was Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, and many hundreds of times I was a wheel-turning monarch, righteous, a king of righteousness, conqueror of the four regions of the earth, maintaining stability in the land, in possession of the seven treasures. What need is there to speak of mere local kingship? It occurred to me, monks, to wonder of what kind of deed of mine is this fruit? Of what deeds ripening am I now of such great accomplishment and power? And then it occurred to me, it is the fruit of three kinds of deeds of mine, the ripening of three kinds of deeds that I am now of such great accomplishment and power, deeds of giving, of mastery of the mind, and of refraining. Okay, so let me explain what's happening here. The Buddha is recounting some of his past lives. There's times in his teachings where he would talk about his past lives. And he did that very rarely, but when he did, it had some importance that's going to help you to understand how to practice in this current life to be able to get closer to enlightenment. So he's talking a bit about his past lives and what he experienced in the past. And then he ultimately talks about the three qualities that led him to those improved rebirths in the past and what led him to becoming a Buddha in his last life. Because becoming a Buddha is very fortunate because you're able to get to enlightenment without the help of any teachers or any guides. And you're very fortunate to be able to have that quality of mind. And it's very rare that a Buddha arises in the world. The last one that the world currently is aware of happened over 2,500 years ago. And the world isn't currently aware of one that's happened since then. So to arise as a Buddha is a very wonderful thing because you can get to enlightenment and you don't need the help of anybody else. You can do it on your own. But everyone else in the world is going to need help from teachers and guides. So understanding the three qualities that he practiced in his previous lives and in his last life that led to his ability to experience improved rebirths and ultimately get to enlightenment as a Buddha would be really helpful for you in this particular life. So he talks about these different rebirths, this one where he's talking about God. I think what he's really talking about here is that he could look out at the world as if he was God, not that he was God himself. He talks about 36 times he was the ruler of the heavenly beings. He talks about being a wheel-turning monarch many, many times, which I've talked in other classes what a wheel-turning monarch is. And if you'd like me to review that, I can share with you guys what a wheel-turning monarch is. Just ask me a question and I will explain that for you. But then he also says, what need is there to speak of mere local kingship? 
because he was a prince destined to become a king and he stepped away from that. So he's like, you know, why should I even be interested in becoming a king here in this local region when I've already done these amazing things in my past life? Why would I even consider being a king in this local region? It's really minuscule compared to what I've experienced in previous lives. But then ultimately what he gets to is he gets to talking about these three particular types of qualities of mind that led to his enlightenment as a Buddha and also led to these previous rebirths. And that's giving, so practicing generosity, mastery of the mind, which is training the mind to be able to control the mind, and then refraining, which is restraining the mind and pulling it back. Because when you develop mindfulness or awareness of mind and you understand craving, desire, attachment, the longing and yearning is what's causing the discontent feelings, then you also learn that what you're doing is you're restraining the mind and you're pulling it back in situations where you see that there's craving, desire, attachment. You're no longer allowing the mind to long and yearn and pull towards the objects of its affection, but you're refraining or restraining the mind and pulling it back. And he's saying that these are the three qualities of mind or the three deeds that he cultivated that allowed him to be able to ultimately get to enlightenment as a Buddha and ultimately experience these previous rebirths. So let me know what questions you guys have here. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to answer any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's move on to the next chapter which is chapter 28. This is quite a long one here, but I'll go ahead and read the whole thing for you and then we can discuss it and review it and answer any questions that you guys might have. So this is titled, Why Human Beings Are Seen to Be Unwholesome and Wholesome. Then the Brahmin student, Subha, Todai's son, went to the perfectly enlightened one and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and friendly talk was finished, he sat down at one side and asked the perfectly enlightened one, Master Gotama, what is the cause and condition why human beings are seen to be unwholesome and wholesome? For people are seen to be short-lived and long-lived, sickly and healthy, ugly and beautiful, uninfluential and influential, poor and wealthy, low-born and high-born, unwise and wise. What is the cause and condition, Master Gotama, why human beings are seen to be unwholesome and wholesome? Student, beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. They originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as unwholesome and wholesome. I do not understand in detail the meaning of Master Gotama's statement, which he spoke in brief without expounding the meaning in detail. It would be good if Master Gotama would teach me the teachings so that I might understand in detail the meaning of Master Gotama's statement. Then, student, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, sir, the Brahmin student Sabha replied. The perfectly enlightened one said this. Here, student, some man or woman kills living beings and is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, 
merciless to living beings. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does not reappear in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, in hell, but instead comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is short-lived. This is the way, student, that leads to short life, namely, one kills living beings and is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. But here, student, some man or woman, abandoning the killing of living beings, abstains from killing living beings with rod and weapon laid aside, gentle and kindly. He resides compassionate to all living beings. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. But if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does not reappear in a happy destination in the heavenly world, but instead comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is long lived. This is the way, student, that leads to long life, namely abandoning the killing of living beings. One abstains from killing living beings with rod and weapon laid aside, gently and kindly. One resides compassionate to all living beings. Here, student, some man or woman is given to injuring beings with the hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is sickly. This is the way, student, that leads to sickliness. Namely, one is given to injuring beings with a hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. But here, student, some man or woman is not given to injuring beings with the hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is healthy. This is the way, student, that leads to health. Namely, one is not given to injuring beings with the hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. Here, student, some man or woman is of angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is offended, becomes angry, hostile, and resentful, and displays anger, hate, and bitterness. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is ugly. This is the way, student, that leads to ugliness, namely, one is of angry and irritable character, even when criticized a little. He is offended, 
becomes angry, hostile, and resentful, and displays anger, hate, and bitterness. But here, student, some man or woman is not of an angry and irritable character, even when criticized a little. He is not offended, does not become angry, hostile, and resentful, and does not display anger, hate, and bitterness. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is beautiful. This is the way, student, that leads to being beautiful. Namely, one is not of an angry and irritable character. Even when criticized a little, he is not offended, does not become angry, hostile, and resentful, and does not display anger, hate, and bitterness. Here, student, some man or woman is jealous, one who is selfish, resentful, and feels bitter about the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutations, and veneration received by others. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But, if instead he comes back to the human state, then, wherever he is reborn, he is uninfluential. This is the way, student, that leads to being uninfluential, namely, one is jealous, resentful, and feels bitter towards the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutations, and veneration received by others. But here, student, some man or woman is not jealous, one who is not selfish, resentful, and feels bitter about the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutations, and veneration received by others. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is influential. This is the way, student, that leads to being influential. Namely, one is not jealous, resentful, and feels bitter towards the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutations, and veneration received by others. Here, student, some man or woman does not give food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps, to ascetics or Brahmins. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is poor. This is the way, student, that leads to poverty. Namely, one does not give food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to aesthetics or Brahmin. But here, student, some man or woman gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to aesthetics or Brahmins. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wealthy. 
This is the way, student, that leads to wealth. Namely, one gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to ascetics or Brahmins. Here, student, some man or woman is stubborn and arrogant. He does not pay homage, respect, to one who should receive homage, respect, does not rise up for one in whose presence he should rise up, does not offer a seat to one who deserves a seat, does not make way for one whom he should make way, and does not honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is lowborn. This is the way, student, that leads to low birth, namely, one is stubborn and arrogant. He does not pay homage, respect, to one who should receive homage, respect, does not rise up for one whose presence he should rise up, does not offer a seat to one who deserves a seat, does not make way for one whom he should make way, and does not honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. But here, student, some man or woman is not stubborn and arrogant. He pays homage, respect, to one who should receive homage, respect, rises up for one whose presence he should rise up, offers a seat to one who deserves a seat, makes way for one whom he should make way, and honors, respects, appreciates, and venerates one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is highborn. This is the way, student, that leads to high birth. Namely, one is not stubborn and arrogant. He pays homage, respect, to one who should receive homage, respect, rises up for one whose presence he should rise up, offers a seat to one who deserves a seat, makes way for one whom he should make way, and honors, respects, appreciates, and venerates one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Here, student, some man or woman does not visit an aesthetic or a Brahmin and ask, Venerable Sir, what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, what is blamable, what is blameless, what should be cultivated, what should not be cultivated, what kind of action will lead to my harm and discontentedness for a long time? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and peacefulness for a long time? Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is unwise. This is the way, student, that leads to being unwise, namely, one does not visit an aesthetic or Brahmin and ask such questions. But here, student, some man or woman visits an aesthetic or Brahmin and asks, 
Venerable Sir, what is wholesome? What is unwholesome? What is blamable? What is blameless? What should be cultivated? What should not be cultivated? What kind of action will lead to my harm and discontentedness for a long time? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and peacefulness for a long time? Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wise. This is the way, student, that leads to wisdom, namely, one visits an aesthetic or Brahmin and asks such questions. Thus, student, the way that leads to short life makes people short-lived. The way that leads to long life makes people long-lived. The way that leads to sickliness makes people sickly. The way that leads to health makes people healthy. The way that leads to ugliness makes people ugly. The way that leads to being beautiful makes people beautiful. The way that leads to being uninfluential makes people uninfluential. The way that leads to being influential makes people influential. The way that leads to poverty makes people poor. The way that leads to wealth makes people wealthy. The way that leads to low birth makes people low-born. The way that leads to high birth makes people high-born. The way that leads to unwise makes people unwise. The way that leads to wisdom makes people wise. Beings are owners of their actions, student, heirs of their actions. They originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as unwholesome and wholesome. When this was said, the Brahmin student, Subha, Todai's son, said to the perfectly enlightened one, Magnificent Master Gotama, Magnificent Master Gotama, Master Gotama has made the teachings clear in many ways, as though he were turning upright what has been overturned, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms. I go to Master Gotama for refuge, and to the teachings, and to the community of monks. Let Master Gotama remember me as a household practitioner who has gone to him for refuge for life. Okay, so this is a very detailed teaching from the Buddha, helping this student to understand what leads to certain results in future lives. And remember, the whole goal of this path is to train your mind in this life, get to enlightenment, and not experience rebirth. But this student is asking a question of what makes it so that someone is either unwholesome or wholesome. So Gautama Buddha explains it in detail of exactly what leads to any particular aspect of life, whether being reborn into hell or being reborn into the human realm and what the condition is in that human realm. So he's explaining it here not to guilt, shame, or fear anybody into learning and practicing his teachings because that's part of what you're eliminating is eliminating guilt, shame, and fear. You're not looking to eliminate guilt, shame, and fear through guilt, shame, and fearing people. That's not what the Buddha would have done. Instead, he's just helping people to understand what leads to rebirth in a particular realm and what the condition of that realm is 
once somebody gets into that realm. And it's all based on the decisions that you're making. So it's very wise to go through a discourse like this that's in such detail and understand what are the things that are leading to unwholesomeness and cut that out of your practice. And what are the things that are leading to wholesomeness and include that and cultivate that in your practice? Not as a way of guilt, shame, and fearing you into doing anything, but you'll see the results for yourself. So like this first part, the Buddha's talking about eliminating killing. So if you eliminate killing, you'll see that you'll have a better life in this life, right? You can see it in this life. And then he talks about other things here, about mental states and injuring beings He's talking about being angry and irritable. He's talking about being jealous or selfish or resentful. He's talking about practicing generosity here. He's talking about being stubborn and arrogant. Uh, So when you see the unwholesome qualities, work to eliminate those from your practice. And then when you see the wholesome qualities, work to cultivate those in your practice. And that's what's going to lead to improvement in your life, in this very life, and help you actually get to enlightenment in this life. So let me see what questions you guys have. You can either ask those through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Okay, so we have a question coming in here. This is not related to this particular teaching, but I'll go ahead and answer it for you. The question is, for vitamin B12, omega fatty acids, one will have to depend on chicken and fish, how to deal with this. You can actually get a B12 vitamin that isn't based on fish or chicken. You can get other versions of B12 that are either plant-based or chemically based that don't rely on animals. So you'll be able to find those. If you need help with that, You can research the internet, or if you're interested in the ones that I use, I can share those with you. Just send me a message. And now that I think about it, this question actually is related to this particular discourse because the Buddha talks about not injuring animals or living beings and not killing as well. So by taking a B12 vitamin that isn't dependent on chicken or fish, you wouldn't be killing and you wouldn't be injuring those beings. So that would be very helpful for you. So there's substances for b12 that don't rely on animals that you can use if again if you need help just let me know i'll share the ones that i use or you can do the research on your own and find ones that are readily available for you in your country because each country has you know certain ones that are available i use the iherb.com that's the one that i found that works best because it ships internationally. I think they're based in the UK. And when I order from there, it gets shipped into Thailand. So you might find that that works for you, but your country might have other suppliers as well. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions here. Thank you for your question. We'll just go ahead on to the next chapter. And this chapter is also quite long. It's chapter 29. It's titled, The Marks of a Great Man. 32 marks of a Buddha. What this is, is this is the Buddha describing what led to him being reborn into the physical form that he actually has at that particular time. During his lifetime, he was considered to be quite handsome. And here he's describing what led to him being reborn in this particular body and those particular qualities. So 
again, what I would suggest you do when I read this is think about the qualities that he's talking about that are wholesome and look to cultivate those. Not that you're trying to look like the Buddha or take on the physical qualities that the Buddha has, but instead to be able to cultivate this wholesomeness that led to him becoming a Buddha, that will also help you to get to enlightenment. So I'm going to read this for you. And as I mentioned, if you listen to this as a way of what wholesome qualities you should cultivate in your practice, that's what will help lead to your enlightenment. So it's titled, The Marks of a Great Man, 32 Marks of a Buddha. A wise teacher of other communities know these 32 marks, but they do not know the karmic reasons for the gaining of them. A. Monks, in whatever former life, former existence, or dwelling place, the Tathagata, being born a human being, undertook many deeds to wholesome purpose, unwavering in wholesome conduct of body, speech, and mind, in generosity, self-discipline, observance of the fast day, in honoring parents, aesthetics and Brahmins, and the head of the clan, and in other highly meritorious acts, by performing that wholesome gamma, heaping it up lavishly and abundantly at the breaking up of the body after death, he was reborn in a happy state in a heavenly world where he was endowed beyond other heavenly beings in 10 respects, in the length of heavenly life, beauty, happiness, splendor, influence, and in heavenly sights, sounds, smells, flavors, and contacts. Falling away from there and coming to be reborn here on earth, he acquired this mark of a great man. One, feet with level tread, so that he places his foot evenly on the ground, lifts it evenly, and touches the ground evenly with the entire soul. Being endowed with this mark, he cannot be impeded by any enemy or adversary from within or without, from craving, anger, or ignorance, unknowing of true reality, nor by any aesthetic or Brahmin, any heavenly being, Mara, or Brahma, or any being in the world. B. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata, being born a human being, lived for the happiness of the many, as a dispeller of fright and terror, provider of lawful protection and shelter, and supplying all necessities by performing that wholesome gamma, was reborn in a happy state, a heavenly world, Falling away from there and coming to be reborn here on earth, he acquired this mark of a great man. On the soles of his feet are wheels of a thousand spokes, complete with an outer wheel and hub. Being endowed with this mark, he has a large community. He is surrounded by male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asaras, nagas, in Ganabas, monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata, being born a human being, rejecting the taking of life and abstaining from it, and lying aside, stick and sword, resided kind and compassionate, having friendship and compassion for all living beings, by performing that wholesome gamma, was reborn in a happy state, falling away 
from there in coming to be reborn on earth. He acquired these three marks of a great man, protecting heels, long fingers and toes, and an excellently straight body. Being endowed with these marks, he is long-lived, long-enduring, attaining a great age, no foe, whether an aesthetic or Brahmin, a heavenly being, Mara or Brahma, or anyone in the world can possibly take his life. Monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata became a donor of fine food, delicious and tasty, hard and soft, and of drinks. By performing that wholesome gamma, he was reborn in a heavenly world. Falling away from there and being reborn here on earth, he acquired this mark of the great man. The seven convex surfaces on both hands, both feet, both shoulders, and his trunk. Being endowed with this mark, he received fine food and drinks. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata made himself beloved through the four bases of compassion, generosity, pleasing speech, beneficial conduct, and impartiality, on returning to this earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, soft and tender hands and feet, and net-like hands and feet. Being endowed with these two marks, all his students are well disposed to him, male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asaras, nagas, and ganabas, monks, in whatever former life, the Tathagata became a speaker to the people about their welfare, about teachings, explaining this to people, and being a bearer of welfare and peacefulness to beings, a dispenser of teachings. Returning to this earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, high raised ankles and upward growing body hairs. Being endowed with these marks as a Buddha, he becomes the chief, foremost, highest, supreme among all beings. Monks, in whatever former life that the Tathagata became a skilled advocate of a craft, a science, a way of conduct or action, thinking, what can I learn quickly and acquire, quickly practice without undue weariness? On returning to earth, he acquires this mark of the great man legs like an antelope's. Being endowed with this mark as a ruler, he quickly acquires whatever things are fitting a ruler. The things that pertain to a ruler delight him and are appropriate to him, as a Buddha likewise. Monks, in whatever former life that the Tathagata approached an aesthetic or Brahmin and asked, Sir, what is the wholesome? What is the unwholesome? What is blameworthy? What is not? What course is to be followed? What is not? What if I do it? Will be to my lasting sorrow and harm? What to my lasting peacefulness? On returning to this earth, he acquired this mark of a great man. His skin is so delicate and smooth that no dust can adhere to his body. Being endowed with this mark, he will have great wisdom, extensive wisdom, joyous wisdom, swift wisdom, penetrating wisdom, discerning wisdom, 
and among all beings there will be none equal to him or wholesome to him in wisdom. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata lived without anger, perfectly unruffled, and even after many words had been spoken, was not abusive or agitated or wrathful or aggressive, displaying neither anger nor hatred nor resentment, but was in the habit of giving away fine, soft rugs, cloaks, fine linen, cotton, silk, and woolen stuffs. On returning to this earth, he acquired this mark of the great man, a bright complexion, the color of gold. Being endowed with this mark, he will receive such fine stuffs. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata reunited those long lost with relatives, friends, and companions who had missed them, reunited mother with child, and child with mother, father with child, and child with father, brother with brother, brother with sister, and sister with brother, making them one again with great rejoicing. On returning to earth, he acquired this mark of the great man. His male organs are enclosed in a sheath. Being endowed with this mark, he will have numerous sons, disciples, more than a thousand sons, powerfully built heroes, crushers of the enemy host. Monks, in whatever former life that the Tathagata, considering the welfare of people, knew the nature of each, knew each one himself, and knew how each one differed. This one deserves such and such, that one deserves so and so. So he distinguished them. On returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man. He is proportioned like a banyan tree, and standing without bending, he can touch and rub his knees with both hands. Being endowed with these marks, he will be wealthy and rich, and these will be his treasures, confidence, morality, moral wrongdoing, moral concern, learning, generosity, and wisdom. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata, interested in the welfare of the many, their advantage, comfort, freedom from bondage, thinking how they might increase in confidence, morality, learning, generosity, in teachings, in wisdom, in wealth and possessions, in two-legged animals, in four-legged animals, in wives, in children, in servants, workers, and helpers, in relatives, friends, and acquaintances. On returning to earth, he acquired these three marks of the great man. The front part of his body is like a lion's. There is no hollow between his shoulders, and his bust is evenly rounded. Being endowed with these marks, he cannot lose anything, confidence, morality, learning, generosity, or wisdom. Losing nothing, he will succeed in all things. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata was one who avoided harming beings by hand, by stones, stick, or sword, on returning to earth he acquired this mark of the great man. He has a perfect sense of taste. Whatever he touches with the tip of his tongue, he tastes in his throat, and 
the taste is dispersed everywhere. Being endowed with this mark, he will suffer little distress or sickness. His digestion will be good, being neither too cold nor too hot. As a Buddha likewise, he is also equitable and tolerant of struggle. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata was accustomed to look at people not with an attitude, suspicious or disapproval, indirectly or secretively, but directly, openly and straightforwardly, and with a kindly glance. On returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, deep blue eyes and eyelashes like a cow's. Being endowed with these marks, he will be looked upon with love by the common people. He will be popular and loved by male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asaras, nagas, godnabas. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata became the foremost in skilled behavior, a leader in right action of body, speech, and mind, in generosity, virtuous conduct or moral conduct, observance of fast, in honoring father and mother, aesthetics and Brahmins in the head of the clan, and in various other proper activities. On returning to the earth, he acquired this mark of the great man, a head like a royal turban. Being endowed with this mark, he will receive the loyalty of male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asaras, nagas, and gandhavas. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata, rejecting false speech, put away lies and became a true speaker, wedded to the truth, reliable, consistent, not deceiving the world, on returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, his body hairs separate, one to each pore, and the hair between his brows, white and soft, like cotton down. Being endowed with these marks, he will be obeyed by male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asaras, nagas, and ganabas. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata, rejecting slander, abstaining from it, not repeating there what he had heard here to the detriment of these, or repeating what he had heard there to the detriment of those. Thus, he was a reconciler of those at variance and an encourager of those at one, rejoicing in peace, loving it, delighting in it. One who spoke up for peace on returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, forty teeth and no spaces between the teeth. Being endowed with these marks, his followers, male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asaras, nagas, and ganabas, will not be divided among themselves. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata, rejecting harsh speech, abstaining from it, spoke what was blameless, pleasing to the ear, agreeable, reaching the heart, courteous, pleasing and attractive to the multitude, many people. On returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, 
His tongue was very long, and he had a Brahma-like or God-like voice, like the Karavaka bird. Being endowed with these marks, he will have a persuasive voice. All his students, male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asaras, nagas, and ganabas will take his words to heart. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata, rejecting idle chatter, spoke at the right time what was correct into the point of the teachings and discipline and what was bound up with profit. On returning to earth, he acquired this mark of the great man, jaws like a lion's. Being endowed with this mark, he cannot be overcome by any foe or hostile thing from within or without, by craving, anger, or ignorance, unknowing of true reality, by any aesthetic or Brahmin, heavenly being, Mara, Brahma, or anything in the world. Monks, in whatever former life the Tathagata, rejecting wrong livelihood, lived by right livelihood, refraining from cheating with false weights and measures, from bribery and corruption, deception and insincerity, from wounding, killing, imprisoning, lightweight robbery, and taking goods by force. On returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, even teeth and very bright canine teeth. Being endowed with these marks as a Buddha, his students, male and female ordained practitioners, male and female household practitioners, heavenly beings and humans, asaras, nagas, and ganabas will be pure. Okay, I introduced this one when I first started reading it to help you guys understand how you can take a discourse like this and use it for your benefit, which is essentially take those wholesome qualities and cultivate them in your life. Not that you aspire to have the same type of body as the Buddha, but instead he's explaining to you the wholesome qualities that led to his rebirth into this particular body, which during his lifetime was considered to be very handsome. So you can cultivate these wholesome qualities in your life, which will help you to get closer and closer to enlightenment. Let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's move to the last chapter for today, which is chapter 30. This chapter is titled, The Simile of a Lump of Salt. This is about three pages long, but you'll see this is a nice story to help you understand gamma and why one person and the other person can do exactly the same thing, but they can experience that gamma in different ways. The Buddha is going to help you to see that and understand why using this analogy of a simile of a lump of salt. Monks, if I were to say thus, a person experiences gamma in precisely the same way that he created it. In such a case, there would be no living of the spiritual life and no opportunity would be seen for completely making an end of discontentedness. But if one were to say thus, when a person creates gamma, that is to be experienced in a particular way, he experiences its results precisely in that way. In such a case, the living of the spiritual life is possible and an opportunity is seen for completely making an end of discontentedness. 
Here, monks, some person has created a small amount of unwholesome gamma, yet it leads him to hell, while some other person here creates exactly the same small amount of gamma, yet it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less plentiful residue. What kind of person creates a small amount of unwholesome gamma that leads him to hell? Here, some person is undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom. He is limited and has a mean character, and he dwells in discontentedness. When such a person creates a small amount of unwholesome gamma, it leads him to hell. What kind of person creates exactly the same small amount of unwholesome gamma, and yet it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue? being seen, much less plentiful residue. Here, some person is developed in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom. He is unlimited and has a lofty character, and he resides without measure. When such a person creates exactly the same small amount of unwholesome gamma, it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less plentiful residue. Suppose a man would drop a lump of salt into a small bowl of water. What do you think, monks? Would that lump of salt make the small quantity of water in the bowl salty and undrinkable? Yes, venerable sir. For what reason? Because the water in the bowl is limited. Thus, the lump of salt would make it salty and undrinkable. But suppose a man would drop a lump of salt in the river Ganges. What do you think, monks? Would that lump of salt make the river Ganges become salty and undrinkable? No, venerable sir. For what reason? Because the river Ganges contains a large volume of water. Thus, that lump of salt would not make it salty and undrinkable. So too, monks, some person here has created a small amount of unwholesome gamma, yet it leads him to hell, while some other person here has created exactly the same small amount of gamma, yet it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less abundant residue. Here, monks, someone is imprisoned for stealing half a kapahana, which is a coin or currency, a kahapana, or a hundred kapahanas, while someone else is not imprisoned for stealing the same amount of money. What kind of person is imprisoned for stealing half a kapahana, a kapahana, or a hundred kapahanas? Here, someone is poor with little property and wealth. Such a person is imprisoned for stealing half a kapahana, a kapahana, or a hundred kapahanas. What kind of person is not imprisoned for stealing half a kapahana, a kapahana, or a hundred kapahanas. Here, someone is rich with much money and wealth. Such a person is not imprisoned for stealing half a kapahana, a kapahana, or a hundred kapahana. So too, monks, some person has created a small amount of unwholesome gamma, yet it leads him to hell, while some other person here has created exactly the same small amount of gamma, 
yet it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less abundant residue. Monks, take the case of a sheep merchant or butcher who can execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize someone who has stolen one of his sheep, but can't do so to someone else who has stolen his sheep. What kind of person can the sheep merchant or butcher execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize for stealing a sheep? One who is poor with little property and wealth. The sheep merchant or butcher can execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize such a person for stealing a sheep. What kind of person can't the sheep merchant or butcher execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize for stealing a sheep? One who is rich with a lot of property and wealth, a king or royal minister. The sheep merchant or butcher can't execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize such a person for stealing a sheep. He can only plead with him, Sir, return my sheep or pay me for it. So too, monks, some person has created a small amount of unwholesome gamma, yet it leads him to hell, while some other person here has created exactly the same small amount of gamma, yet it is to be experienced in this very life, without even a slight residue being seen, much less abundant residue. If, monks, one were to say thus, a person experiences gamma in precisely the same way that he created it, in such a case, there would be no living of the spiritual life and no opportunity would be seen for completely making an end of discontentedness. But if one were to say thus, when a person creates gamma, that is to be experienced in a particular way, he experiences its results precisely in that way. In such a case, the living of the spiritual life is possible and an opportunity is seen for completely making an end of discontentedness. Okay, so what the Buddha is essentially getting to here is this analogy of the bowl of water or the river Ganges and this lump of salt being put into this bowl of water or the river Ganges. So the water represents the wholesomeness that you've done in life, while the salt represents the unwholesome gamma. So if you haven't really done much wholesomeness in your life, and you have a very small amount of water, and now this lump of salt goes into the water, it's going to be undrinkable, meaning you're going to have significant impact from that same exact action by somebody else who's done lots of wholesome things in the world. That same exact action is going to be experienced differently by these two different people. This is going to happen based on the natural law of gamma. So the more wholesomeness that you do, then as you do these individual unwholesome things, you're not going to experience it in the same way. The goal would be to extinguish all your unwholesome gamma by making wise decisions. But on the path to doing that, you're going to trip and stumble. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have missteps. And as long as you're continuing to do lots and lots and lots of wholesomeness, you'll experience that unwholesome gamma in this very life. And that's what the Buddha is explaining here. And by experiencing this unwholesome gamma in this very life, it means that you can extinguish it. But if you're doing a lot of unwholesome things and you're not going to experience this gamma in this life, that means you're going to have to be reborn in multiple lives in order to extinguish that unwholesome gamma. 
But if you're ex experiencing a certain unwholesome thing that you've done in this life and you're experiencing it in this life, that means you're having the opportunity to extinguish it in this life, which means you can get to enlightenment in this life. That's what the Buddha is essentially coming to in this particular teaching. So let me know what question you guys have on this particular chapter. Okay. I'm not seeing any questions here on this particular chapter. So what I'll do then is I'll just remind you guys that in our next class, we're going to be in the next 10 chapters. So we're going to be in chapters 31 through 40. And you can read those prior to class because you've got the words of the Buddha, you've got the reference, and you've got words from me that will help you to develop your understanding of the content in each chapter. And I suggest students read these maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes a day rather than sitting down and reading for an hour or hour and a half. You'll find that if you take little bites like this, you'll be able to digest it more easily. Where if you sat down and tried to read all of these in one hour, or hour and a half, there's a lot of different topics that you're trying to digest. So while you could feasibly sit down and read all 10 chapters in one sitting, it's more wise to do it in smaller increments and in smaller bites, maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes at a time. So maybe one or two chapters per day and gradually consistently read over the course of multiple years. And you'll find that you'll be able to digest it and apply it in your life in a more seamless way. Whereas if you try to digest it all at one time, it would be much harder for the mind to retain that wisdom and understand what it is that you read and then apply it in your daily life. And that's where you're actually transforming the mind is when you're applying the wisdom. So if you're having trouble retaining the wisdom, then you're going to have trouble applying it in daily life. So if you can read just 10, 15, 20 minutes, then you can retain that wisdom more easily and then apply it more easily and actually create transformation in the mind. So that's what I would recommend for you guys. If you would like to attend tomorrow's class in the group learning program, which is Sunday at the same time, we're going to be in the group learning program studying the five hindrances in the seven factors of enlightenment. That's the last Sunday class of that iteration of the group learning program. The five hindrances are the five obstacles that are going to hinder you from getting to enlightenment. So I'm going to explain what those are, how to observe them in the mind, and then how to remedy them, how to make sure that you can uproot them and get them out of the mind so that they don't impact you and hinder you from getting to enlightenment. And the seven factors of enlightenment are tools and techniques that are going to help you to eliminate the five hindrances, but they also help you with other aspects of your practice as well. And I'm sure that you will experience these five hindrances at some point in your practice. You may even be experiencing them now. So it's helpful to learn what they are and then how to actually remedy them. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together, which will be our very last breathing mindfulness meditation class in this iteration of the group learning program before we restart from the very beginning on Sunday, the 13th of August. And then I'll go and guide you guys through the group learning program from the beginning all the way through developing a life practice, the path that leads to enlightenment over a course of seven month period, you'll be learning this entire book, which is a foundation for you to establish your life practice to getting to enlightenment. So thank you all for your questions. Thank you for your interest in learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha. We'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.